0: James chapter 1 is our scripture text for this morning. It be found on page 1880, if you're using the Pew Bible. Starting in the book of James, just to kind of give you an idea of... Um, my plan over the next several months. We're going to go through James as our regular uh, regular preaching up until Christmas time and then it is my intention to start a gospel, most likely the gospel of Matthew and by that time we won't be all the way through James and so we'll kind of have that uh, as something else that we'll work through. Perhaps we'll take some breaks from the gospel of Matthew here and there uh, and, uh, and we'll have James go alongside with it. So that's that's my intention as we look out over the, uh, the next several months. Of course, we went through the Gospel of Luke a couple of years ago, and uh, that took a couple of years for us to work through. I am, uh, just to give you a, a, a reason why, I'm wanting to go through another sermon, John, Cal- uh, another Gospel. John Calvin said half of the sermons a pastor preach- preaches should be from a Gospel. So here we are At a Christian Reformed Church, we have to take what Calvin says seriously, and so we're going to work through uh, the Gospel of, of Matthew and do it in a way that honors God and honors his word. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, and as we trust that he will bless it to us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. C.S. Lewis wrote that he had a, a friend who once made the comment to him that most of us prefer to treat God as a, a parachute for a, a military pilot. It's there if you need it, but you hope that you never have to use it. And a military pilot can fly many missions and hopefully never put in the situation where he needs to use that parachute. This friend of C.S. Lewis said, that's how most people seem uh, to treat God. And we understand how wrong that is, all of the things that we've talked about this morning, all of the, the themes that we're constantly thinking about here as, as God's people, as we look to his word. That God is not an optional part of our lives. In fact, he is the one who is, who is Lord of all. He has created us for himself. He, he doesn't exist for us. He's there for us and he is our our help and our hope, but we exist for him. You could switch roles to where we are the inanimate object and God is the one who is doing the work. We, We are like an unrefined diamond and God is the one who is doing the refining, placing us under great pressure and chipping away at our imperfections so that we might come forth glimmering and shining and beautiful. Perhaps if you would prefer that we were something animate, something living in the illustration, we are like children growing up in the household of faith. And God is a a loving father, a loving parent that is is guiding us along and, and, and keeping us from danger and teaching us over and over and over again. If I were to think about the, the wisdom and the love and the power of God as our loving Heavenly Father, all that He knows, and how often we fall short and fail. I would liken our own state, our own condition, to something like a, a 17-month-old boy. And that probably has a lot to do with the fact that I have a 17-month-old boy at home. And I am. he takes up all of our time, and we are constantly watching him. He is constantly getting into things. And that is the kind of of love and wisdom of a Heavenly Father that we need. We are growing up in the household of faith. He is refining us. And as we see in James, that uh, trials are a central way that God refines, that God chips away at our imperfections, and how He produces uh, in us that which He has purposed from all eternity— So that we might be the people he wants us to be. Here's our our, our central thought this morning. Our life transforming reality is this. Since our trials can be wasted. And we'll talk about that. We'll unpack that obviously. But since our trials can be wasted. We must attack our trials in joy. Out of deep love for the savior. And steadfast trust in our heavenly father. Since our trials can be wasted. We must attack our trials in joy, out of deep love for the Savior, and steadfast trust in our Heavenly Father. As we look to the beginning of James, we see that here the author identifies himself. We didn't have that in Judges, we didn't have that in Ruth. Here, uh, we're reading a New Testament epistle, and the author identifies himself as James. This is James Uh, the brother of Jesus. This is not the James who is one of the twelve in Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the, the actual blood brother of Jesus. But it's interesting, isn't it, that as James introduces himself, that's not who he says he is. He doesn't say, I am James, the brother of Jesus. He says, I am James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ, the The Greek word here is is doulos, unmistakably, it is slave. I am a slave of God and of uh, Jesus Christ. One would think, of course, that having Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Savior of the world, as your brother, that that would be a a calling card that you would uh, often speak about. We all do this, right? We we like to uh, think about who we're connected to, whom we know, we ever have run-ins with significant people. We like to, to tell others about it. We're all guilty of this. I, especially, I'm guilty of this, just to give you a sense of, of uh, how petty I can be in this way. A couple years ago, I ran into the legendary White Sox announcer, Ken Harrelson, on a golf driving range. I said a couple words to him. He gave me a, a knuckle bump. Apparently, even back then, he wasn't comfortable with the handshakes. And I still bring that up. I still talk to people. I say, yeah, we're, we're pretty much friends. We're pretty much buddies. We all do that. We like to think about who we are connected to. James, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He says, I am a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give his family credentials. He gives his, his spiritual credentials. That's something very important that James will unfold throughout this epistle. It's that who we are spiritually before the face of God, that is what we are to be primarily concerned with. It's not just that, James giving his spiritual credentials, not his, his family credentials, he's showing us that spiritual wholeness and a life well lived before the face of God, that is what we are to be primarily concerned with on this earth and in this life. Oftentimes we're drawn to, to think about the, the achievements and the statuses that we are given here below and many of, the, of those things can be good if they are kept in their proper place. We need to understand What is primary? And James puts that on display for us. Firstly, I'm a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. I serve my God. I serve Christ. One of my favorite go to pastors that I listen to in the course of the week, because I need to be spiritually fed as well. And, And he preached through James one time, and he was preaching this passage, and he said, If we all adopted that mentality, first and foremost, who am I? What am I? I'm a servant of God. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, then uh, the things in our lives would, would neatly fall into place from that point forward. It would answer a lot of the questions we have, the kinds of things we spend our time doing, our goals, our dreams, our deepest desires. What are they? They ought to be formed by the fact that we are servants of God and of Jesus Christ as we're made to know him in the gospel of Christ. John Owen once said this, that a pastor may pack his pews and fill out his communion rolls, but who he is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing else. And we all need to to remember that. James, as the brother of Jesus, it's interesting, uh, we read that in the life of Jesus, Many of his brothers, as we read in John 7, didn't even believe in him. And so we think that perhaps this is, James is counted among them. John chapter 7 says this. His brother said to him, if you do these things, that is all of the miracles, all of his work, show yourself to the world. And then James says, for not even his brothers believed in him. James had come to believe. And he says, this is now the central piece of who I am. I serve God. And I serve Christ. The audience of James is the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Here and elsewhere, James and James will notice a very very Jewish flavor, the twelve tribes of of Israel. And it is true that James' audience here, those who would have read this letter at the time that it was written, this is an extremely early letter, uh, very likely, almost certainly the first and earliest piece of the New Testament, it's true that James and his audience they would have been Jewish Christians. This is before even the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where they're kind of working out, so how do we welcome all of the Gentiles who are now confessing Christ? How do we make them part of the community of of believers? But I think it's, it's, it's right to assume that while James has a very Jewish flavor at the time of his writing, almost all of his audience would have been Jewish believers, it's important to note that uh, as those engrafted into the church, as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is our God, that we are secondary recipients of this letter as well. That we are included in James' idea of the, the twelve tribes scattered among the nations in James' life, this would have been a a title that signified a true and believing Israel. And James knew that very well. Not, Not all who were born as Jews had confessed Christ as Lord or were following him. So James clearly is not writing this to the ethnic nation as a whole. He's writing this to believers in his world, believing Jews, to us who confess Jesus Christ. We are recipients of this letter as well. James says to count it all joy when you endure trials of various kinds. This is a, a call to joy. And when we, we think about that, that he's calling us to joy, what do we know that's going on? Well, we know that, therefore, that in James' mind, since he's calling us to joy, he's assuming that not everyone has the level of joy to which he was calling us. It's not something that comes naturally to us. So when he calls us to joy in trials and says, this is the kind of attitude we are to have. This is how we are to think about the trials through which we go. We come to the conclusion that there is a way that we can waste our trials. We can waste them. And that's what James wants to prevent us from doing. What are trials? Trials are things that God sovereignly allows or ordains in order to test and mature our faith. We spoke about this last Sunday evening, the way that God is sovereign over all things and the way that we think about them. And when we think about trials, those great afflictions that, uh, that we endure, that we go through, we don't think about God as, as up in heaven and he's throwing down pain and affliction and trial like lightning bolts. We have to think about God as totally sovereign over all things, but all that flows forth from sin and the fall and death, he is arranging the events of history. He is sovereign over them. But he is not the efficient cause of any of those things. Because God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. You see, we unpacked that last Sunday evening. That's why you need to make sure you always come to evening services. Those are the kinds of things we're, we're unpacking. Though God is sovereign over our trials. He allows things. He ordains things to test and mature our faith. So what I want to do for the rest of this morning is first this. Give us a few things, a few tests, by which we might know that we are in danger of wasting our trial. And then we're going to talk about why we ought to count it all joy, and then how we will count it all joy. Don't worry, I know that the the time is, is short, so it's not like I'm just starting the sermon now. We'll work through these things quickly. First, how do you know that you're in danger of wasting your trial? First this, when it causes us, when our trials cause us to disregard all the blessings of God and the mercies that he has shown us, it so blinds us to what God has done up to that point in our lives that we forget all of his blessings, all of his mercies. John Flavel, Puritan pastor, says this, That our tears so blind our eyes that we cannot see the mercies that remain. We take so much notice of what is gone that we take no notice of what is left. And we're so consumed with the trial that we're facing that we forget all of the goodness, all of the grace, all of the mercies that God has shown, shown to us, all of His blessings. So in order to fight against this danger, what do we need to be? We need to be people who are taken up with a fervent and earnest gratitude towards God. If you know God in Jesus Christ, if he has made you new in him, if you are forgiven and made righteous and made to know our God in and through the gospel, and you trust him and you know that he has poured his mercy upon you, then your life ought to be taken up with a fervent and earnest striving after gratitude because of what God has done. And the one who is taken up in that quest for an ever greater gratitude will be the one who does not forget what God has done when trials come. Secondly, you're in danger of wasting your trial when it causes you to disregard the trials of others. Now, uh, here I'm not saying that, um, obviously there's going to be a natural focus that we have upon our own situation, our own trials, whenever they, they come. I'm not saying you're, we're diagnosed with cancer and you skip your, your cancer treatments so that you go and, and serve someone else. That's not what I'm saying. But when our hearts are filled with the kind of sentiment that we would say, well, I'm the only one who has... Uh, this kind of pain and suffering god must hate me he must despise me no one feels the way i feel no one can help me those are the those kinds of things the kinds of things that bring us into danger of wasting our trial we always are mindful of our collective suffering we always ought to remember that each of us have things in our lives that bring us great pain And as part of the people of God, we always ought to be remembering that and care about each other and love each other as a family. Next, we're in danger of wasting our trial when we purposely avoid worship, prayer, and time of spiritual refreshment. Trials are meant to drive us to God. They're meant to, that that we come to a place where we understand and know that only he can fill the emptiness that we are experiencing. So if trials are meant to drive us to God, how tragic it is when they drive us away from him. In Psalm 42, the psalmist is uh, working through a, a kind of spiritual depression, an anguish, a sorrow. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What's going to fix? What's going to help him coming and appearing before God? He says, my tears have been my food day and night. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. And then he says this, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. What helps him hope is remembering worship. When we are cast into trials, we need worship whenever possible. Next. We're in danger of wasting our trials when we complain about God rather than complaining to Him. The Psalms are filled with this kind of language of complaining to God. We're voicing our concerns. We're pouring out the sorrow of our hearts. But when that, that prayer life is, is not there and bitterness fills our heart, then what do we do? We start complaining about God rather than to Him. God wants to know our deepest cares. Cast your cares upon the Lord For he cares for you. He wants our lives to be filled with a vital and spirit-empowered prayer. Psalm 142, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. He wants to know. He wants to, to hear. These are just some things that we can think about when we remember that there is a way that we can waste our trials. James doesn't assume that all of us Uh, will receive the kind of grace and sanctification that often does happen in and through our trials. Before we move on, I want to talk just briefly about the connection of joy and faith. James says, count it all joy. And many of the things that we just talked about are what happens when our lives in trials are bereft of joy. We don't have any joy So we're complaining about God. We don't have any joy, so we believe that we're the only ones who could feel this level of pain that we're feeling. We don't have joy, so it causes us to disregard others and avoid prayer and spiritual refreshment. The barometer of joy is important because barometers of joy are barometers of faith. If you have faith, then you have joy in some sense. What is faith? To steadfast trust and confidence that God is in control. If we believe that God is in control in the midst of our trials, on some level, our lives will have the joy of the Lord. It doesn't mean we won't have sorrow and anguish. The wonderful thing about the joy of the Lord is that it exists alongside all of those things. So next, why we should count it all joy when we endure trials? James is very clear. Why do we count it all joy. It's because it produces something which produces something else. And when we live in joy in our trials, we uh, experience a greater measure of perseverance, as our uh, translation puts it. Our trials produce in us perseverance. That's fine as a as a translation, but I actually... Uh, prefer the word steadfastness. We count it all joy, we go through our trials in joy and in faith. There is pressure that's applied to our faith and that brings forth steadfastness. This word, uh, the Greek word hupomeno, is a, a word that means an ability to carry a heavy load for a long time. You think about the world's strongest man where they kind of have these huge cement blocks and bars and the contest is how long they can, they can walk. When I was a camp counselor, uh, some of the, the older and stronger boys, we'd give them this challenge of carrying a heavy cross all the way up and down the driveway of the camp, the middle of uh, the summer days, the heat, uh, down in, in central Missouri, very hot, very difficult. And if one of these boys were to finish that challenge, we would say, boy, he showed great perseverance. But what if we were talking about him during that, as he's doing that, and as he's taking all of these steps, we would say, boy, he is being really steadfast. And that's the idea here, that as we live through our trials in faith, in the joy of the Lord, pressure is applied to our faith that tests and matures it. It's like a muscle. When you add resistance to the muscle, the muscle fibers break down and it comes back stronger than before. To use a a very trendy word, something that has kind of entered into uh, our common parlance in the last couple of years, faith is anti-fragile. It responds to shocks and volatility and randomness and disorder. When God brings all of those things from our experience into our lives, if we live in faith and have the joy of the Lord, and that pressure is applied to our faith, it will mature it, And that's the importance of counting it all joy. Because if you don't have joy, you're not living in faith. If you're not living in faith, then when pressure gets applied to you in your trials, it's not going to be, to, to be centered upon your faith. You're not living in steadfast trust of God. So this perseverance is the kind of thing that we ought to strive for by God's grace. Another reason why we are to count it all joy is because steadfastness produces spiritual wholeness and maturity. It makes you mature. If you have a steadfast faith, one that uh, will not be blown over by the various trials that you have, you have a strength and a steadfastness with everything that comes your way, then all of the other virtues of the Christian life can flow freely. All of the fruits of the Spirit You think about someone who is steadfast in trials and how all of the fruits of the Spirit would abound in them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things are going to flow out of a heart that is steadfast in trial. And that's why James says, then you will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James doesn't say, he's not implying that we achieve any kind of moral perfection in this life. But as, as we consider the work of God in our lives, we understand that as steadfastness is produced in trial, and as we experience a steadfast faith, then spiritual wholeness and maturity flows forth from it. We can waste our trial... By God's grace, we can count it all joy, and we should want to because it produces perseverance, which produces spiritual wholeness. So then as we close, how, how do you count it all joy? Well, the first thing is this. It's what we talked about at the beginning. First, we need to understand and remember that our trials are from God. To all of those who know God and Christ, counted among the people of God, he is like that one who is refining a diamond, placing it under pressure, chipping away, producing something that glimmers and shines and is beautiful. Again, we don't think about the afflictions in our lives, the, the very worst things about this life this, this, uh, and, and the curse that we experience here below. We don't, experience, uh, we don't think about it as God just sort of lobbing it our way. But he is sovereign, and he allows and ordains things because he is always working on us as his people to produce in us that which is pleasing to him. And so we remember that God is doing this. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So we remember, God is teaching me something. He's doing something. He is at work in my life. And that brings us comfort. The second thing is this, consider consider that God is forcing you to go to him, to trust in him, to find in him all that you need. St. Augustine said this, God wants to give us something, but he cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. It's amazing how suffering always reminds us that we cannot trust in ourselves. We cannot lean on ourselves. We're not in control of our lives the way that we often think we are or wish we were. And when God empties our hands, he empties our hands so that we come to him with empty hands, that he might fill us with all of the emptiness that we feel. And then lastly this, consider That our trials remind us that nothing in this world can satisfy. And that teaches us that we must be made for another world. Nothing in this world ultimately satisfies. And that tells us that we were made for another world. Once again, C.S. Lewis says this. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I believe that faced with the very difficult things in this life that we often are, that is when these desires come out of us. This, the, the, these desires that make it very clear nothing in this world, nothing in this life can ultimately satisfy us apart from the God of Scripture and Jesus Christ, our Saviour. But that that produces another dilemma, because as we are filled with an emptiness that we often confront in this world, and then that produces in us desires that remind us we were made for another world, we are also reminded that we are not fit for that other world for which we were made. And this brings us back to what James says at the beginning. He calls himself a servant of God and of Christ Jesus. Now think about the way that James is writing about trials. Ultimately what he's saying is they are a preparation for the next life. All of our trials, all of our suffering, God is doing something in them. He's allowing and ordaining things to come our way that he might refine us and produce in us something that pleases him and he might prepare us for that next world. But that next world is a world that in and of ourselves we could never enter. So if James has this view of this world, this earth, this life, it's all a preparation for the next And then we're reminded that we are not fit for that world. But then the solution as to how we are made fit for that world is Christ himself. It's no wonder that James says, I am a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. Because if we look at this life and we say, what is it about? What is it for? What are we to be doing? How are we to take up our time serving God, glorifying him, and trusting that he is preparing us for the next life and the next world. But we ought to always remember that without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, without his work on the cross, without his life lived and being raised for our justification and seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and shedding forgiveness abroad in our lives, in our hearts, that world for which we were made is a world that we would never enter except for the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. So suffering, trials, things in this life that God may allow or ordain that are very painful and very difficult, ultimately are a reminder of the salvation that we have only in and through Jesus Christ. When we go through trials, we say God is preparing me for the next life for the next world. He's making me fit for all of those things. But it is only because of Christ that I have assurance that I am a citizen of that age, of that world, of that kingdom. So that is why James can say that he's a servant of God and a servant of Jesus Christ. May it be the same for each of us. Nobody wishes trials on anyone all of us go through them. We don't ask for them. We don't look forward to them. They're a reality of this life. We know we can take comfort that God is doing something in and through them. He's filling our emptiness with himself. He's preparing us for the next world. And because he is doing that, it reminds us that Christ has made us citizens of that next world. May we live in light of all of those things as we glorify God in the way. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would do a work in us in the grace of the gospel that we seek these things we, we seek to attack our trials with, with joy and faith but you're the one who is working in and through us and we are reminded of that as we think of Jesus Christ and, and the grace that we have in and through him you're preparing us for a world that only he can bring us to and so we, we thank you and praise you for our savior we pray that our hearts would remain steadfast as we think about all of the, all of the things that uh, may be ahead of us, that test and mature our faith. Keep us strong and um, keep us encouraged and ready, willing, and eager to glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.